0: Welcome everybody to the second episode of Ghouls in the House.
1: I am Natalie Litovsky,
0: and I am Arnold T. Blumberg and this episode we're going to continue what we did with our premiere episode where we're focusing a lot on movies that one or both of us consider longtime favorites, comfort viewing, which now more than ever is something we're turning to. And this episode is a movie that It's probably one of my top three favorite movies of all time, regardless of genre, and it's Them from 1954, the giant ant movie.
1: Nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation, for born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe Them. (laughs) Maybe witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation, and the beast shall reign over the
0: earth. You know, maybe people listening to this wouldn't think that's odd, but sometimes, I guess in some circles, I say that's one of my favorite movies. They think, really? We're going to be talking about them, and we're also going to be talking about another film, Beginning of the End, from 1957 one of many many other giant insect movies that came in the wake of them but one that has some interesting more or less direct connections to them that makes it the um, the closest cousin to this classic sci-fi film long regarded by many as one of the great 1950s sci-fi horror movies of all time so that's what we're going to be covering in this episode but first we have something to catch up about from uh, episode 1
1: um so we'd put forth the question in our first episode of is there a male version of black widow um just to try to describe the character of frederick lauren and his penchant for murder or at least murder games with his wives and i had never heard it before and you had never heard it before but we actually had two different listeners jump in and tell us yes in fact there is
0: so credit to both Ryan and Manuel for sharing with us the news that that is referred to as a bluebeard. And so I did a quick little look up so we could cover the basics of that, but it comes from a French folktale, which apparently the earliest version known is from 1697 by Charles Perrault, and it tells the story of a wealthy man in the habit of murdering his wives in the attempts of one wife to avoid the fate of her predecessors. According to Merriam-Webster, is a man who marries and kills one wife after another. So there we go. It's a bluebeard. And apparently lots of people knew this already, and we didn't. So there we go. Frederick Lauren's a bluebeard.
1: It's important for us to learn things, too.
0: Yeah, it's good to know. Next time we do another podcast and start off with House on Haunted Hill, we'll refer to Lauren as a bluebeard right from the beginning, and everybody will think we're exceptionally smart. (laughs) Anyway, this episode is about them, and as I said, it's an all-time favorite. These are the kind of stories that I know I've probably told before on the previous show, Doctor of the Dead, and I'll probably keep telling on this, but there's a whole slew of movies that I grew up with. I think when you're of a certain age and of a certain time, if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, you often saw a lot of these things, if you're a sci-fi and horror fan, on your local Saturday night creature feature or late night television. And for me, the two main sources for all of these films were Count Gordy Vall, who's still plugging away online, uh, but was the Saturday Night Creature feature on WDCA-TV out of Washington, D.C.,
1: Greetings, I'm the Count Gordy Wall, and welcome to Creature
0: Features. Alternately, I would sometimes turn on WBFF45 here in Baltimore for Ghost Host, who was George Lewis, and like many of these guys, he also would do double duty in the afternoons as Captain Chesapeake hosting children's programming, but then at night, Saturday nights, he was the Ghost Host. There'll be clips. And uh, I'll leave it to him to do that. I love the fact that George Lewis's shtick. was... Gordy Vall is his standard vampire. He puts on the makeup. He, he also would often do very, like, racy, right up to the edge sexual double entendre jokes. And, you know, have, like, sexy women on a show and everything. I think he enjoyed that aspect of it. George Lewis's shtick was to, to do every line of his thing like it was a question. You know, it's coming up next Saturday night. That was his thing.
1: Maybe he wasn't sure. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't
0: guys what are we doing next week
1: there there were no cue um, cards he was just rolling through
0: and it would be like you know james rness joan weldon in them <laughs> it's like all right maybe <laughs> is that it um i'm but-
1: assuming it was always it they didn't like throw you for a loop and put no it was
0: that's right and uh i think i still have the v- uh, a vhs copy of some of them from ghost Host. so it's like The other thing that was great about Ghost Host, as opposed to Gordy Vall, is they would chop the hell out of the movies and ruin them. So commercial breaks were terrible. Like we now experience on streaming, where things cut weirdly, the movies were just chopped and the music, the Ghost Host music, would play over the beginning of the next segment of the movie and cut out the sound. So the whole thing was a mess, but we liked it that way. Them was one of the movies we see late at night, and it was one of my mother's favorite movies. And one of the movies we shared together to the point where we knew every line of dialogue by heart, and countless references in our lives come from them just lines of dialogue. And when you see a movie often enough, as you and I have talked about, you start to look for everything the nuances of performance, something happening in a scene. And I have dissected and rewatched this movie a million times.
1: I also have to add. For those of you who may not know Arnold or his mother, they both hate bugs, like a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Ants in particular. But they love this movie, which I find fascinating.
0: Can't figure it out. And not only that, there's the whole standard sequence in this that many other movies did versions of where you always have your scientist guy brief everybody with the actual footage of the real creatures to say, here's what ants are like. And they show close-ups of all, like, tons of ants doing stuff. Normally, it would freak me out. I, can't, I can watch that over and over again. It doesn't bother me a bit. But find one ant on the kitchen counter, and I will call 911, and <laughs> we'll shut it all down, start burning down the house. But them, I'm fine with that. I don't know what it is.
1: I don't know. But if you put on like a National Geographic special and it had a feature on ants and was showing the same type of footage they have in the movie.
0: I probably couldn't handle it for too long. Genuinely. Yeah. It's the context. And I can do it as long as Edmund Gwen is talking about it. (laughs) As long as he's doing his stuff, you know, it's like her wings will drop off. See, one has dropped off now. And it's like, okay, I can go with this. This is good. He's comforting. A lot of people know him mainly as Santa Claus from Miracle on 34th Street for me. He'll always be Dr. Medford from Them first.
1: So let's roll this back to the beginning, maybe, and give okay. a little bit of an overview.
0: Them came out in 1954. It was right at the forefront of the real boom in sci-fi storytelling that came out of the dip in horror storytelling after World War II, Then there was the rise of sci-fi as the Cold War kicked in. And Them is one of the first of the films that deals with atomic power being both the hope and fear of the future and what it might do to us and what the natural world might do to rebel. Giant ants appear uh, in the New Mexico desert. They're near where some of the atom bomb tests are happening. And now these ants are many feet long. And we get, it starts as a police procedural, which is also a very nice slow development in this film this film takes its time it builds a mystery and the mystery is what's going on and what has led to the death of an FBI agent who is taking his family on vacation and we're introduced to two cops one of whom is going to be one of our close friends through the whole film James Whitmore's character Ben Peterson and eventually we find out it's giant ants but one of the things i find i'll just say that i find fascinating about this that i also love about the movie Planet of the Apes another of my favorites is it's a movie that when you were going into this movie in the theaters in 1954, you knew it was a movie about giant ants. It's on the posters. There's no mystery. But the movie acts as if you don't know that yet and is telling you a story structured as a mystery, but you knew. And I just love that conceit.
1: What I was going to say, actually piggybacking off of that, because I was going to bring up the poster and say, like, it, you, you know, it's an ant. It, yeah. It's right, <laughs> That's there. right there. But... I kind of like how it means that as the audience, you already know what's going on, and the characters don't. So you're watching the characters try to solve a mystery, and in essence, you already know the what. You don't know the why, but you know the what. And you're watching them try to piece together a mystery that isn't a mystery to you. And I think... There's something very smart about that because it makes your viewer feel involved in a sense because if they could yell through the screen, like to the cop who's like, Wow, this trailer is destroyed, like if you could be like, It's an ant, <laughs> it's an ant, like you you would through the screen, but it makes you feel almost like omniscient.
0: I think one of the things about this movie, one of the many things I love. And that other people say, too, it's not It's not just a personal thing. This, this is a highly regarded movie from that era. And not just in genre terms. It's very well made. This cast is exemplary. And the intelligence of the writing and the performing and the making of the movie seems far above what this kind of premise in this kind of movie might deserve. It's a smart film. And, and the way it's brave enough to say, we're going to put this right in your face at the beginning... There's like the bit where he puts his hand in the sugar and all the ants are all over it. We already know. We know. There you go. They are, they're normal size, but there are big ones out there. But they don't get it yet. They don't understand. So I was saying it's 1954. It's interesting also its place in history as one of the atomic giant monster movies because that same year, across the ocean, Godzilla shows up for the first time in Japan. And that movie was directly inspired by a previous film, beast from 20,000 fathoms that came the year before Ray Harryhausen movie that led to the development of Godzilla Toho. So all these movies are interconnected. And oddly enough, beast from 20,000 fathoms is another one of my favorites. One of the main DVD releases of them and beast are the two of them on a flip DVD. So you can get the two of them
1: together one after the other. I mean, it certainly makes sense to put them together from a storytelling perspective. In my opinion, I still would like to see a double disc of them and beginning of the end. But we'll, we'll get to that as our second movie later on.
0: I mentioned James Whitmore, kind of as we did the first episode. We're finding our feet here with what Ghouls in the House, the shape it'll take. But maybe cast is one of the things we'll wind up focusing on. And like I said, the cast is exceptional here. James Whitmore is sort of our first POV character as Ben Peterson. But very quickly, we're introduced to James Arness who comes in as uh, the FBI agent, Robert Graham, who's coming in because it was an FBI agent that they initially find dead from what turns out to be an ant attack. And then our two doctors, Medford, our two scientific experts who come in and already know, because they're myrmecologists, what's going on, but are cagey about it for a while. And that's Dr. Harold Medford, our Santa Claus, Edmund Gwen, and his daughter, Pat, who's played by Joan Weldon, who spent most of her career as a singer. We've had that happen before. And another thing that I think I felt good about introducing you to this movie, and something that I think we've seen happen a lot in the 50s sci-fi movies, is at a time where everybody was being pushed into certain gender roles, the women in a lot of these movies are treated... Well, sometimes they're still they're still treated with maybe not disdain, but like with sexist tendencies. In fact, when Pat first shows up, we get this ridiculous scene where she catches her leg and she has like half a calf showing and they're like, oh, this is the greatest show in the world.
1: Dr. Medford? Huh? Are you Dr. Medford? Hmm? Yes, yes, yes. No need to shout. Oh, you're the people, of course. Got a message somewhere. They Said you'd meet us. That's right. Oh. I'm Bob Graham. How would you do? This is Sergeant Ben Peterson. Hi. Oh. You're the one who found the print. Yeah, that's right. Pat. Pat, hurry up. I'm caught. Can I help? No, thank you. I think I can manage it. is the other doctor met Gentleman. my daughter Patricia. Pat? This is the man who found the print, Sergeant... Um, uh, ben Peterson, miss. How do you do? Well, then you must be Mr. Robert Graham. Yes, ma'am, how do you do? Hello there. We've got a car waiting, we can take you to a hotel. Ah, the hotel can wait, we've got work to do. Come on, I want to read all your reports right away. Come on, Pat. Excuse me, sir. This is suppressed. She's quite a doctor, huh? Yeah, she's the kind that takes care of sick people. I think I get a fever real quick. <laughs>
0: Her father refers to her as doctor all the time. For many years, we built a whole little side mythology of our own about this movie. Like the mother's gone. He never treated her like a daughter. He treated her like a colleague. She's treated like an expert.
1: Because she is an expert.
0: And she doesn't let anyone do otherwise. There's also like the great scene where she shuts Graham down. It's like, I don't have time to teach you about all this stuff. I got to go down there and find it. Let's not do this. Let's do our job. What are you made up for?
1: I'm going with you and Ben. Oh, no, you're not. Listen, Bob, someone with scientific knowledge has to go. My father's physically unable to do it. That leaves me. That leaves you here. Now, look, we don't know what we're going to find down there or what'll happen. There's one thing for sure, it's no place for you or any other woman. I didn't ask her to go, Robert. She wanted to. And being a scientist myself, I couldn't very well forbid her. A trained observer has to go into the nest. What for? There are more important things to find out than whether all the ants are dead. You wouldn't know what to look for. Well, you tell us what to look, look for. We're... Bob, there's no time to give you a fast course in insect pathology. So let's stop all the talk and get on with it. Okay, okay.
0: They're great together. And her father never treats her as anything other than an equal.
1: It was enjoyable for me to watch because we've, we've seen plenty of sci-fi movies, especially the space travel type sci-fi movies of like the 60s, where you'll have women involved and on board and they're ostensibly scientists, but really you can tell they're just there to be the damsel. There was one that comes up on Mystery Science Theater a lot. This is going to be a running theme, I think, which is uh, King Dinosaur, where you've got two couples, all of them scientists, who are going off to this planet.
0: That's one year after them, too. And-
1: they're supposed to be going to explore and to take samples. All the women want to do is like make sure they can get in a bath and a good meal and scream every time they see something. Like they cannot handle themselves. They see a giant bug and they freak out and just scream Like unintelligibly, and there's just a lot of literally dragging them around. But then you get a movie like this where not only is she capable as an expert in her field, but she also is literally willing to get down and dirty. Like she's not screaming because of a giant bug, she's saying, Please send me down into the nest because I can't tell you what it is that you have to look for. It's a lot easier. If I just go in there and look for myself, someone strap me up with a flamethrower because I got to get in the hole. And it's like, it's very refreshing to see not just that she can hold her own from a scientific standpoint, but that she's also not shying away from tackling the problem.
0: One of the other things about this cast is not only what great leads we have. And I mean, I have so many stories, again, like House on Haunted Hill, this is one of those things where I think I feel a little overwhelmed about it because there's so much to talk about every time i see the movie i look at something different just before we were recording i was telling you about you have to really watch james whitmore particularly later in the movie when he starts to recede into the distance and the Medfords sort of take the lead in the group of four that are our leads he's still always there and it's one of the few movies where i feel the logical justification for why local enforcement or local characters are carried along through a military operation makes sense Because unlike a lot of 50s movies that try to make the government always look great, this one is a little clearer about the idea that they're lying to the public initially, they're hiding people away, like Fess Parker I'll talk about in a minute, who knows what's going on. And so the idea that a local cop and an FBI agent would be given military outfits and told, you're also going to handle the bazookas, may not still make sense in the real world. But at least in the movie, you feel like, yes, they're keeping them all close because they want to keep this contained. But when you watch him later in the movie, he may be sitting in the background while three other people are doing a scene in front, and Whitmore does everything in his power to make sure the camera still sees him. He'll lean in to make sure he's not cut off when somebody's in front. He does weird stuff with his face, like he's constantly trying to keep himself awake, and apparently he pissed Arness off because he's a scene stealer you know, extraordinaire. So it's fun watching him. And it's also fun, all the little nuances I love. There's a scene where Edmund Gwen is telling the story about the queen ants. And he says, you know, she's gone on her wedding flight. And there's this thing he does where he walks over to a book that's just sticking out a little bit on the file cabinet. And he just pushes the book back while he's talking. There's no need for that whatsoever. It's just a beautiful little human moment. These characters are far more real than a lot of these movies would ever bother to make them.
1: And I think it's particularly interesting to me that the overarching theme in this is science good, government bad. It like, kind of boils down to that. The military is ready to just blow up one of its own like cargo ships full of its own citizens because it would rather just no evidence of something happening ever drift ashore. It's also willing to just go guns blazing into a sewer where two kids are being held hostage by ants because they're thinking, whatever. Like, we just have to kill the ants. Who cares if we kill two kids? And it's sort of our POV characters who are like, well, why don't you ask their mom? She's standing right behind you, listening to you give this plan. And it's fascinating to me because it's not the type of mood that I would expect in a film of that era, especially coming out of World War II. I would think that there would be, be i guess sort of a veneration of both like of both government and science you
0: do that you do however see in the movie that ultimately they listen to them they do like the military listens to the medfords and listens to ben and robert they ultimately do what's right because the leadership is shown to be competent which is Uh, how
1: you know it's fantasy purely
0: fantasy it's not
1: the giant ants that make it fantasy it's the fact the scientists lay out their case and the military says okay why don't you take charge of this then what's your plan
0: yeah and the that's
1: and, the fantasy element to and me. the
0: american government decides science should lead the way in saving people's lives yeah pure fantasy i was mentioning about the the caliber of cast for people that love watching a lot of familiar character actors of a certain era too there's a lot of fun stuff in this and so many people in the smallest of parts in this if you're that type of person you're a connoisseur of character acting big name people just a few william Schaller turns up at the very beginning as the guy putting the little girl in the ambulance at the beginning and saying she gonna get a good ride and depending on your age she he's either patty duke's father or gidget's father
1: you know what happened to her no don't know her name no look take good care of her huh? Give her a nice, easy ride right into the hospital. I'll be with her all the way. Good.
0: Or a million other fathers, and in tons of other stuff, Dub Taylor is in this one of the most prolific western character actors of all time, not quite wearing his usual derby hat, but he turns up as one of the guys they investigate for possibly um, was it the sugar shipment.
1: Is sugar rare cargo? Is there a black market for it? Did you ever of a fence for hot sugar?
0: Richard Deacon, the people know from the Dick Van Dyke show, is one of the reporters.
1: I have a special press conference at five o'clock on a Sunday.
0: There's tons more, including a few I didn't know. Dick York apparently turns up in this, and I'm still not entirely sure where. Booth Coleman, who is one of the the Dr. Zayas on television. And of course, probably most importantly, Leonard Nimoy gets a couple lines as a young guy, young military guy who finds the report about ant activity or something unusual and thinks this is something to pass up and mentions that it's T.S. stuff, top secret. When biggest stories are told, Texans will tell them. That ought to fit in with the kind of
1: stuff they're looking for upstairs. Anybody found out yet what's going on in this building? No, real T.S. stuff top
0: secret. You get to see Spock about 10 years before he first plays the role. In fact, almost exactly 10 years. And then there's the other thing, which is this movie is a linchpin in pop culture history for two main reasons. And it just shows how effective this movie was at showcasing character and acting over the usual stuff you'd expect in in what in another film might have been considered an exploitation movie, but it's not in this. It's a character-driven story where everybody is bringing their A-game. And two people got incredible boosts to their career because of this. I mentioned Fess Parker. He has one scene in this as an, uh, a pilot that accidentally came across some of the ants while they were flying around. And he has kind of a comedic
1: scene. Hey, we're zooming around like regular kamikazes. Like scared me out of my pants. Excuse me, man.
0: Walt Disney was told to go see this movie by some of his people Because James Arness was in it as Bob Graham and they thought he might be good for Davy Crockett for the Disneyland TV show. Instead Disney saw Fess Parker's scene and said there's my Davy Crockett. From that point on Fess Parker for many people is known if I remember correctly as both Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. But another thing is John Wayne saw this movie. And he was asked to be Marshall Dillon in a new series called Gunsmoke, and he didn't want to commit to television. But he said, I've got your Marshall Dillon, and you got to go see them. James Arnest spent the next 20 years after this movie playing Dillon, became a television icon for generations. And it's interesting, too, because his brother, who we'll talk about later, also became a television icon for something different. And both of them, that's one of our main connections between them and beginning of the end. We have the brothers Arnest in this. It's quite a towering achievement to not just be a movie about giant ants, but to also impact decades of pop culture because of it.
1: So I think it'd be good for me to set the scene just a little bit now that you kind of have the cast of characters, Um, because you've mentioned things like the FBI agent goes missing or he's the one who puts the little girl in the car. So if you haven't seen this movie, it starts in a way. There are
0: people that haven't seen this movie.
1: I know. I know. They've had since 1954. (sighs) But uh, I hadn't seen it until you showed it to me. <laughs> so yeah, there might be a few. It starts in a way that will feel very familiar, I think, because I think a lot of filmmakers since then have been inspired in part by scenes that they've seen in this movie. It's one of the things where the first time I watched it through, I thought, I don't know, it feels very derivative. And then I realized it doesn't. It's what's every- like what everything is being derived from. Yep. So it sort of starts with two cops who are on like the rambling desert beat where you ride up and down the highways and they see a little girl just completely catatonic, just walking down the road. And they obviously double back and she's not responding to them at all. When they talk to her, she's just walking, 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 like in a nightgown. Um, And they kind of scoop her into the car and try to figure out where she came from. And that's when they find the completely destroyed camper with evidence of crime, but no bodies. Everything is destroyed. Obviously, you know they're trying to figure out how we how we process this kind of crime scene, and it's fascinating because it it shows you the people writing it kind of knew some of the policing strategies and tactics including finding mysterious prints outside and they are able to pour cement into the print to try to pull it up. And it's the kind of stuff you think is more modern, but it really isn't. I mean, there have been what is now called forensics for a long time, especially things like footprints, fingerprints, things like that. It really does start out with them just trying to solve this mystery of why was this girl walking alone? Why was she catatonic? Why is this destroyed? Why are there no bodies? And it's because it was an FBI agent on vacation that it escalates up the chain pretty quickly after that escalates even further because there's more destruction in town. One of the deputies goes missing. It's just chaos and they've never seen anything like it. It kind of leads to what is one of my favorite little moments where they bring in the doctors Medford who are coming in to help. And they go to see the little girl in the hospital to try to figure out what's going on. And with just excellent bedside manner and understanding of how to delicately deal with children, the elder Dr. Medford just waves a jar of formic acid under her nose until she starts screaming. And he's like, ah, theory proved.
0: Until we get the title of the movie. Kay? Yeah.
1: And what's interesting is that to me, I can see reflected from that the way in the later Halloween movies that Dr. Loomis handles children because Dr. Loomis is not a a children's doctor. He is not. Like by the time you get to Halloween, I guess four, really. It's five
0: when we see him at the clinic. Yeah, at the clinic. I mean,
1: four, he's using a child as bait to try to get Michael Myers in a little way. And then five. five, he is setting up a whole bait scenario like he is doing to catch a predator, except it's Michael Myers. And he's just screaming at children and like slapping them around. And it's just one of those things where you're like, why why did they put him in charge of children? But I get that same vibe from Dr. Medford because he's completely immersed in proving his theory. And in a sense, he, I think really is just used to treating everyone like an adult it's like we're just going to treat everyone like they're part of this process
0: and given what we know about how difficult it is particular well like it's any different now but in the 50s for a woman like pat to get where she is, I feel like everything about her career has been a desperate attempt to excel beyond anyone else in order to get his approval because she can't communicate with him emotionally. But as a colleague, she can work with him and achieve a connection that they couldn't otherwise.
1: Well, in essence, she's also going into the family business, which is looking at bugs.
0: It's also worth noting that the one doctor in that scene who rattles off all the descriptions of what's going on with the little girl is also a woman. And she runs down with him, like what's going on and, you know, how they have to deal with you know her not being able to talk and her you know, catatonic state and everything. And that could just as easily have been a man in that scene. It isn't. And I thought that's kind of nice that you get that character, too.
1: There's a lot of pop culture in the late 50s that really starts to try to flip the script and push women out of work spaces and back into the home and say, well, I know we, we let you out to come help us when everybody was off fighting, but we're going to just need you to go back inside. Just go back in and uh, stay there because now everybody's back and we don't know what to do, which is, you know, insidious in many ways. But I feel like this movie instead just sort of embraces that, of course, There are working women out there. Like, of course there are, because everyone is so used to it. They've seen it. Anybody who wasn't off at war was used to seeing professional women in many capacities. And instead of trying to go back to what sort of the culture was before the Second World War, they just accepted it as it was. And uh, I really appreciate that because that certainly speaks to the writers and to the cast whoever was sort of staffing this film
0: also wanted to mention by the way so the ellenson girl is sandy desher who stopped acting 10 or 15 years later she got a little bit older and i was just looking up went into the family business with the michael's chain of stores i don't think the same michael's is the michael's that's today because they say it's a fashion chain of stores but apparently she and her husband she stopped acting and they just went into um uh, managing the palm springs location and spent she spent the rest of her life in the michaels business
1: it so, probably beats running around in the desert with giant ants and jars full of formic acid
0: yeah i mean she acted as a kid but then she was one of the ones that didn't make the transition and evidently didn't want to it's interesting one the other thing she did was a tv version of miracle and 34th street not playing against them and gwen but two santa claus connections there how but, many
1: versions of miracle and 34th street are there There are a lot huh.
0: i mean it's one of the ones that not quite like It's a Wonderful Life, but one of the ones where it almost not. Well, It's a Wonderful Life has kind of become a trope, like to the point where almost every major television series has done an It's a Wonderful Life episode where the main character's is like, haven't you ever wondered what it would have been like if you'd never been born? Miracle on 34th Street isn't quite that, but there are multiple versions. There's, I think, was it, Marlo Thomas did one. There's, there's multiple versions of it. Maybe she did It's a Wonderful Life listeners you will correct me i'm sure (laughs) um
1: i just i i am not uh for christmas movies it's not my thing but what's his name i don't know uh, anything about them
0: jurassic park attenborough he did a remake of miracle on 34th street perfect choice for a santa claus
1: that the one with mara wilson
0: yes i think that's right Um, none of this
1: has anything to do with giant ants no
0: but it does have to do with em (laughs) and gwen who's like despite being a character that you read as emotionally distant, is also equally lovable. But also one of my favorite stories about him is one that Joan Weldon always used to tell. And you can see it in the film. Which is that at this point in his career, he was apparently racked with truly debilitating arthritis. He was in enormous pain all the time. And there are even scenes where he bends down. And one scene you can see, like Whitmore and Arness help him back up. And it's not just a character touch. They're lifting him. He keeps acting through the scene. And Weldon would tell the story about how he always seemed miserable and in enormous pain. And she said as soon as the camera started, he would turn on, do his lines. He was great. And she said as soon as a take was over, he would just crumple. And it's amazing both the dedication he had to the work, but also how sad it is that he He was suffering through that while doing this stuff, but he's incredible because he also provides what at this point was already becoming and would certainly become a standard sci-fi genre cliche of like the harbinger of doom from the scientific perspective. He delivers the speech about, you know, you know, we haven't seen the end of them.
1: And I thought today was the end of them. No, we haven't seen the end of them.
0: We've only had a close view of the beginning of what may be the end of us which, of course, is important for our next film later. But he gets to do all the stuff about the speeches. He wraps it up at the end, uh, and he's amazing. And also, as mentioning all the people, I should also mention one of the goofiest characters in the movie that, if you've seen it enough times, you certainly remember, is the old man in the uh, hospital who's seeing the ants out his window into the L.A. River Basin thing there, and is Olin Howland who does the uh, make me sergeant, charge the booze, and he's crazy. And uh, his last ever role was only a few years later, and the blob is the old man that pokes the blob with a stick. So
1: <laughs> I just I would love to know that he's credited like that, like on the credits as they roll, as old man who pokes blob with stick. Should have been, if he isn't.
0: but um, We've got
1: some new credits.
0: Yeah, and, and if you're seeing this these days, you see it entirely correctly. I do remember, I'm pretty certain, When I was a kid, I would see it where the them title at the beginning with that exclamation point was in black and white, but it should appear in red and blue because originally the film was supposed to be in 3D. And then they decided they were going to drop the budget and they couldn't do that, but they left the title of the film in color. It's the only color touch in the movie is this big red and blue them that comes up at the beginning.
1: There is actually one more cast member that we haven't really talked about yet which is the ant
0: oh okay
1: because these are really the pinnacle of what other special effects giant bugs should look like and don't look like in other movies of that era
0: there's i think a few color photos of them that exist that show that they were actually like green and purple painted like with a color wash to give them more realistic look but of course we don't see that but i'm sorry people complain all they want they're they're giant you can't even call them animatronic because they didn't really have that yet but they're the giant machines that they had built and they just look great they have they have like the the stickery fur on the surface uh the heads look great they look pretty damn accurate for what an ant should look like they behave okay and they're also shot well they're shown pretty clearly, but they also try to make sure they keep things moving and they don't dwell too much. They're wonderful. I will stand up for the ants of them any day. It's great special effects for the era.
1: Well, especially because they actually made models and did this practical work. Right. A lot of what you see in a lot of movies, especially ones that had a very limited budget, will be a regular size bug or say a lizard or something like that a lot of iguanas standing in for dinosaurs and and things of that nature the
0: bird eye gordon approach yeah where you just
1: put them in front of a map painting with some like models of things or
0: perhaps a postcard (laughs) or
1: a postcard and just kind of let them crawl around and then have somebody else go ah it's so huge (laughs) these
0: are entirely big and not small at all this
1: thing is in the scene with me and it is large (laughs) Uh, but this movie didn't do that i mean they made these ants yeah and they have these wonderful like micro movements where it's not just something where you have like a giant immobile model that's getting pushed on wheels from behind a hill and slowly approaches it's not static i mean it moves they have little head turns and the shoulders move i mean it's really amazing work
0: they're great. And yeah, the head tilts and they're shooting the antenna and it looks like real antenna you know, being affected by the gunshots and everything. It's just fantastic. And, and you're getting
1: real science to take them down. Yes. This ant shows up for the first time, sort of cresting over this hill. Instead of just everybody panicking and firing wildly at it, the scientists are like, shoot the antenna. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, and then they do it. They don't continue firing wildly at it. Yep. They aim for the antenna, and we're told that what that does essentially is blind the ant because now they can't navigate anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just real science.
0: Yeah, and there's so much of that laid out by Dr. Medford, the elder Dr. Medford, in the what becomes the definitive fifty scene of the character laying out the biology of whatever it is you're dealing with. And I learned a lot from them. It's like it's where I learned a lot of basics. I, as far as I can remember, and again, I maybe a listener will correct us, I don't think any of the science about ants in them has ever been contradicted or changed. Like, for instance, in Jaws, a lot of the stuff they establish in Jaws is entirely wrong. Mm. The idea of a rogue shark and territoriality apparently now has no scientific basis, but at the time they thought it might. In them, I don't think anything they say about the ants is anything that's been superseded by new study. I don't think
1: so. I mean, they mostly just lay out how a colony is structured. Their
0: strength, their relative strength. The thing that always fascinated me that, again, I'm not sure if it's entirely borne out today, but the idea that they're the only creatures on Earth other than man that wage war. And the thing that always got me was the part where he says they make slave laborers of the ants they capture in war. And I'm thinking that's amazing to me to think that these tiny little insects are enslaving others of their kind and using them as labor. The thought process that's going on in that is truly creepy, which makes the idea of making them larger and a threat to humanity just feel so much more immediate and powerful. And so, yeah, the ants are fantastic. And also, anybody that's a fan will always hear in their head the sound effect of the ant. Which is one thing that is not even remotely apparently accurate, but is a sound effect that then gets used in other films. I think that like Black Scorpion uses it and a number of others, but was entirely sourced from tree frogs. That's the sound you hear of the, the trilling of the ants.
1: Although to be fair, there's never been an ant that big, <laughs> <laughs> right? so we don't Maybe. know what they would sound like. So I'm, I'm willing to give it a pass on the science of the sound of the giant ant that's been mutated by atomic energy
0: i'm trying to think of what other things i could say about why like we did with house in haunted hill why i love this movie so much sometimes i think it's just a case of something you're exposed to often enough that it becomes comfortable for me them has always been comfortable pacing the movie like i said before it unfolds very slowly at first but very methodically with science and intelligent thought leading the way What's interesting about them is it, it helps to establish a genre of storytelling that involves giant bugs and giant monsters invading America in, in various ways. And yet, when you watch them, one of the things that's interesting about them is the threat is largely potential. Like, the ants never actually attack a city in the movie. They never do anything on a big scale. We see their effect on people in the desert. We then, uh, there's an incident where they attack a ship at sea. And then at the end, the big set piece at the end, and and another bit of Hollywood history here, one of many movies that uses the L.A. River as a set piece. A lot of people also, many years later, remember it showing up in Terminator 2, but in in everything. Fear of the Walking Dead, I think. Literally
1: everything. I don't think you're allowed to film anything.
0: Buckaroo Banzai, That takes
1: place in L.A. and not use Um, that.
0: But yeah, so like the ants were building into the sewer system because it mimics their colonies well but they never actually rise up to the surface level and start attacking yet so the the interesting thing about them is as opposed to a lot of other films where giant monsters attack a city is they haven't gotten to that part yet it's all about stopping them before they get there which to me also makes the film feel smarter because it's about trying to get ahead of the threat rather than Gunning it down with tanks and missiles and airplanes, which is most of the other giant monster stuff.
1: They also pretty much are only ever going for food when they're attacking. I think rolling over that trailer in the beginning is just kind of accidental because they're so close to where the colony is, as it turns out. And then they roll through a general store and like pull all the sugar out of the barrels and kind of eat their way through that. And pretty horrific.
0: Thing- pretty horrific shot of the old guy yeah. that they killed and threw down in his uh, like his trapdoor thing. It's it's a bloody shot for a '50s movie. It's fast, but it's still very very dark.
1: And they also go for the sugar on the train it's like a train heist of sugar even the ship out at sea is a cargo ship that's carrying food and so that's what they're going after and it's more so seeing like when they run out of sort of resources to pillage like what happens next and i guess the idea is let's try to stop it before that happens but ultimately i think even though they take care of this particular ant problem they've sort of set up this hypothetical of, yeah, but that atomic test out in the desert, surely it's not just ants that were affected by this.
0: True story now, and one of the things I regret the most from my years working in the comic book industry, where I worked on book, nonfiction stuff, particularly price guides about comics, but because of that was connected to a lot of these companies. For a while there... I got very aggressive with a number of other writing partners about we were pitching all kind of ideas for comic book projects. Once you're in that industry, like any other industry, I guess you're trying to get in and do stuff. We got very close to doing a licensed Planet of the Apes comic, and we actually had a deal, and 20th Century Fox was okay with it, and then suddenly the development of what became the Tim Burton movie, but was originally James Cameron, started, and they were like, it's all off the table now. I was trying on my own to get the license to do a Them comic sequel, because I thought the best way to approach some of these things, you do a comic book. And we were like 2004, 50 years was still ahead. And I thought, let's do a 50th anniversary thing. Let's see what happens. My general conception was, and there have been many other things have now done it. There's a video game from the 90s that got a movie adaptation with really terrible looking cgi bugs very bad uh but they're them fans and they wanted to do my idea in general was to like find out that maybe bob and pat had a kid and that would be one of our leads and that yes there were others and that 50 years on half the united states to two-thirds is covered by the giant ant colonies and everyone has been pushed to the east coast in a near post-apocalyptic kind of situation and what's happening in 2004 as the ants have taken over. I was speaking with a representative at Warner Brothers for a long time and she was great and the saddest thing was this was written by George Worthing Yates who also wrote War of the Colossal Beast and if you watch War of the Colossal Beast as you and I have now seen the beginning of that movie plays like the same exact beginning as them. He reuses a lot of his beats. Mm -hmm. The Warner Brothers rep couldn't find any definitive legal proof about who actually owned the rights at that point. It was too confusing, and apparently in these kind of cases, when you can't clear them, you just give up, because there wasn't any, I couldn't establish that I'd be able to get them enough money to make it worthwhile, so I lost my chance to do a them thing, and the one thing I most wanted to do was one of the, I love this movie, but I thoroughly despise every single time Ben Peterson's death at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, it's from 1954. But our POV character that starts us off, James Whitmore's Ben Peterson, dies at the end of the movie, saving those kids. And there's no reason for it. And his death is treated so offhandedly, especially by our Nessus characters, just like kind of wave somebody in to take his body away. It's horrible. It doesn't have to happen. And I was determined that when I did a sequel to them, I'd have Ben roll in. Like halfway through the movie basically is the new Harold Medford is the old guy in a wheelchair. I was working on that around 1996 or so, I think. Because flash forward one year as my plans to do a Them sequel fell apart. And a movie comes out called The Relic uh, about some lizard god that's uh, eating people. It's a sci-fi horror movie. I've never actually seen it. Probably I have a psychological block. All I can remember is the trailer or a clip from it. James Whitmore turns up in that movie. He rolls in in a wheelchair. And it really annoyed me because I thought somebody else out there decided if I can't do a sequel to them, I'm at least going to put James Whitmore in a wheelchair and have him show up. And I thought, well, oh, there's my whole beat of Ben Peterson coming back. But it just, I think, speaks to how much I love the movie. <laughs> But the kid's well, although I could probably find a million more reasons to go on talking about them, we also wanted to talk about one of the many movies we've been watching over and over and over as we've been immersing ourselves in Mystery Science Theater over the last few months. And that's the 1957 movie, Beginning of the End, one of many films that came in the wake of them and also featured peoples both scientists and military fighting off a wave of enlarged insects and in this it's grasshoppers
1: or locusts locusts it's grasshoppers playing the parts of locusts it's like when you see the credits for something and they credit the dog and it's like in the part of bobo we have jimmy it's (laughs) It's like okay it's a dog you see the dog was played by a dog it's
0: grasshoppers and probably somewhere there were locusts saying why don't they ever cast locusts as locusts why is it the grasshoppers get the gig There are many movies that follow them's basic template and also do giant insects, giant monsters. Beginning of the End in particular is quite clearly directly patterned on them in many respects. It has the same basic structure, although it doesn't in any way achieve the same level of character development and pacing. Uh, It's not horrible, but it's definitely many steps below in quality. Them feels like it's still working at like a studio level of a, a very well-made movie. Beginning of the end is your typical 50s schlock. But what's interesting is look at the posters of them and beginning of the end, and you'll see the exact same weird googly-eyed insect on it. So they knew what they were doing there. They were keying off the them poster art. And also we have an Arness, or in this case a Graves, because James Arness's younger brother, Peter, took the name Graves, which is from the mother's side of the family, I think, and became peter graves and so both movies have an arness as our lead and in this case he's the scientist uh trying to figure out a way to stop uh, the locusts from attacking chicago and they do a full-on attack of chicago in this which just shows you why them was wiser to focus on character and story and not attack a city because when you attack a city in the beginning of the end and your bird eye Gordon producing and directing the movie at a fraction of the budget of them, you you have to rely on uh, throwing grasshoppers on a postcard and tilting the postcard so they slide off of it.
1: Not only that, but apparently he had this vision of just swarms of, of grasshoppers coming into the shot, except he didn't think about the fact that when you import a like strangely sized giant insect of like a regular giant size from another country they hold them in customs in quarantine for a while and not really anticipating that and packaging them almost all of them died before he got them and he didn't really have time or budget to buy more so he was left with like i don't know it was like a dozen or less grasshoppers when he was imagining like dumping a bucket of them like swarming (laughs) over i mean granted it still would have been postcards and like little model buses that, like, you'd get at the toy store. But at least it would have been swarms of them. But he, he didn't really think through the grasshopper import procedure.
0: We also have, as our co-lead, photojournalist Audrey Ames, who teams up with Peter Graves, who's Dr. Ed Wainwright. Which, by the way, Wainwright is a great name to say when you're trying to do a Peter Graves impression. But Audrey Ames, who's Peggy Castle, and I have this feeling that something building for Ghouls in the House is going to become our uh, per-episode tragedy behind the scenes, because I was looking up all these people like we did for House on Haunted Hill, and most everybody, you know, Whitmore and, and Joan Weldon went back to singing, and James Arnest, of course, has a long career as Marshall Dillon, and of course, we all know Peter Graves, shortly after beginning of the end, would go on to great acclaim as the... Uh, Head of the Mission Impossible team, among many other things, and host a biography. And then turn up in cameos in lousier movies, like how Everybody someone Monatel, the would, remake. at some point. But anyway, most of these people, long careers, long lives. Uh, Peggy Castle appears to be our episode's tragedy. She died at the age of 45 in 1973. She had apparently made most of her career being the other woman in B-movies, so in a way, this might have been a very refreshing difference for her. She's the lead. She starts off the film until Graves shows up. She's basically our hero. Then she kind of sort of takes a back seat.
1: But she doesn't him. shy away from being in the fray.
0: She stays. Yeah, I mean, then they're a team, and they're working against the, the crisis, and, and she's in it right to the end. Uh, she did some television, but when you start to go into her personal life, she was married four times. And then in her later years, apparently, she became an alcoholic. And the weird thing that I can't quite figure out is she was married four times, but it's her third husband that apparently found her body on the couch of her Hollywood apartment. Her death was later determined to be caused by cirrhosis. But in Beginning of the End, she's one of our heroes and the one that starts everything off. We did, or rather you did, however, note a very obvious continuity error in Beginning of the End
1: little bit yeah just a a scotch. basically she as our pov character is driving up the road and runs into a military roadblock and they tell her you're gonna have to go around you can't get through she pulls over to the side of the road comes back to talk to the uh the military guard and sort of says maybe i didn't fully explain i'm audrey ames national wire service you know how do i get through First of all, I think one of my favorite lines in the movie, he's like, listen, like nobody gets through. And she says, well, surely that doesn't apply to the press. Oh, my. And I'm thinking like an era where it's like, yes, yes, I know this is a military blockade, but obviously the press can go in. <laughs> it's like you'd never have that now. You can see her carrying her camera to try to go through and then bringing it back to the car and hefting it into the passenger seat because it's it's a hell of a camera. It's
0: worth noting it's 1957. She's not carrying like an iPhone or something. That thing is like the size of a human head. It's yeah. enormous.
1: It's the kind that has like a handle on each side mm-hmm. and is like a huge box. And she kind of like hefts it into the car and drives into town to talk to the military officers just to be like, maybe I can make some inroads here. And after talking to them says, well, can I at least go back and get my camera? You know, the they took it away from me at the roadblock. And sure enough, they show her driving back and having someone at the roadblock bring her camera back to her. So I don't know, like if she had two cameras and they took one of them, but it's a it's definitely a continuity problem that doesn't even need to exist I don't know if it's in the editing. Maybe she did carry the camera prop back to the car just to, like, take it back into the prop shop. But, like, you weren't supposed to see her put it in the car. Maybe that's where the edit was supposed to be. But right off the bat, at least, I love that the movie introduces you to a very driven, very smart, very capable professional woman. Everybody knows who she is. Apparently she was a war correspondent and she had been reporting sort of like from the war front wrote a book about it that they, you know, had all read so they knew who she was. She's got an editor who sort of lets her do her thing. She's got a a bitching car phone. Like so, way before anybody else's car phones. Everybody who's like, wow saved by the bell and all those really gadgety things they had in the giant cell. No. Audrey Ames, National Wire Service, 1957. She's she's got a car phone. Oh, you wind up that jet plane story already?
0: I'm not on the jet story. Norm, listen, I'm on to something I think can be real big.
1: Mm-hmm. Where? Oh. Brother. Huh? What do you mean we can't print it?
0: I've given my word to hold off for a while. Now, listen, Norm. A plane flew over Ludlow last night about midnight. Just about the time the lid blew off. Check on it. And uh. Check Washington. See if they had an atomic installation in the Ludlow area.
1: Okay. Call me back as soon as you have anything, right? Goodbye. And she's just on the case. She manages to talk her way in, manages to get them to take her into to take some pictures of an entire town that's been flattened. It's like them, they start off with a trailer having been flattened. And then you build your way up to the general store, having been flattened. And it kind of builds up from there because now it's a ship. Now it's a train car. Here, they just start with a town. The whole town is gone. Which, you know, it's kind of like dialing it up to 11. And then where do you go from there? She's determined to get to the truth. She's doing her own investigative work. If it wasn't for her investigative work and sort of looking into the only person using any kind of nuclear power in the area, which is an agricultural lab, I don't even know that they would have figured out what was going on. It's
0: also worth noting that Peter Graves is basically responsible for everything. in this all of movie, it. And then acts really cool about figuring out the way to create the signal, to lead them out to sea. But it's like, you caused all this. Shouldn't you be in prison for like...
1: Yeah, I mean, in them, it's clear that it was caused by military tests yes and in this it's very clear it was caused by science it was caused by an agricultural lab that's trying to figure out how to grow giant vegetables and right off the bat she's like wow these are amazing he's like yeah don't eat them they'll kill you
0: You, got, you can't trust departments of agriculture because you learned that in Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, too.
1: So, yeah, the vegetables will kill you if you eat them. And even just trying to grow them, as it turns out, takes away your ability to hear or speak, as it did for his colleague. Because a year prior, they had some kind of lab accident. And the other researcher in the lab mm-hmm. um, lost his hearing, lost his speech. And somehow in that year... Peter Graves just learns how to be fluent in sign language so that they can continue to do their work and communicate in the lab full of things that will try to murder you.
0: This is, like you said, it's going to be a running theme. We've we've gotten to know this movie through Mystery Science Theater. But it's not bad. It's a pretty decent one of these 50s, you know, science versus giant monster, giant insect movies. And although the reason we chose it, obviously, is it is directly inspired by them. It builds on a lot of the things that them established. And it is definitely inferior in many regards. But it's also not bad. It's better than a lot of the others. And, uh, you know, Bird Eye Gordon gets a bad rap sometimes, but it's not a bad movie at all. It's it's just kind of a little kitschier.
1: I mean, it's not really that badly written um it has its moments where you're like "Eh, they they could have probably handled that better but it's not that badly written it's very competently acted everybody in the film is acting to their best ability and they are all accomplished actors you see a lot of these b movies where it's people who essentially are very happy to not have to be doing porn right now And they do these sort of exploitation films or they get people just because they like the way they look on camera because it doesn't matter to them whether they can act because they just think you're just looking at them anyway. This is an assembled cast where everybody is acting. They're even acting their little faces off in scenes where they're playing against like a grasshopper that's been kind of projected into the shot later. And they're still doing it. It's not that poorly shot. Like, it's, no. it's filmed competently. In a sense, the lack of budget for the bugs is part of what makes it feel so schlocky. And the pacing, it just isn't there they were like let's make a disaster movie like those other disaster movies so they just start with a giant disaster and get more disastrous as they go
0: yeah but they can't deliver on it no
1: yeah i'm going to washington maybe the army people will listen to me i'll go with
0: you maybe i can help i saw them too
1: all right we've got to convince them audrey we may be witnessing the beginning of an era that'll mean the complete annihilation of man
0: annihilation
1: annihilation the beginning of the end.
0: As far as beginning of the end, one of the things that interested me when I looked it up was that it's co-written by Fred Freiberger. And as we're saying, we don't think this is that bad. So I would say then that this movie worked out in spite of its co-writer, because Fred Freiberger, again, if you're a fan of certain things, is legendary for showing up to ruin television shows. Fred Freiberger is the man that took over producing the third and final season of Star Trek. And although there are things in the third season of Star Trek that people like, a lot of the severe dip in quality and budget and other things going on in that show are all laid at the feet of Freiberger, who decided he knew how to do the show and save it. And then it got canceled again. He also then moved on. To Space 1999. And if anybody out there is a Space 1999 fan, remember season one? How intelligent and contemplative and quiet and thoughtful that show was. And remember season two? That's Fred Freiberger. And then it was canceled. And then he moved on to the final season of The Six Million Dollar Man. Remember Six Million Dollar Man? All people my age, how great that show was. Remember the final season? Fred Freiberger, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
1: And then it was canceled.
0: <laughs> he co-wrote beginning of the end. How did this work out? I don't know. Maybe they locked him in a room. But somehow, maybe back then he still had it before he moved on to kill television shows. But anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Fred Freiberger's name turning up.
1: Maybe he had one good idea and he used it up in beginning of the end. Yeah, that's
0: probably it. His idea was stealing them. I also should mention music because if you're a mystery science theater fan you see all the bird eye gordon movies you're certainly familiar <laughs> familiar with the work of one al glasser and his bombastic music but it's fine it really is fine in in this context but Branislaw caper did the music for them it's just so atmospheric it has that almost universal horror sound of like decades prior and then moves into like the bombastic military stuff as it sets the mood. And both of these movies are, are fine as far as music is concerned, too. They're a great double feature. Even if beginning of the end is sort of a pale imitation, it's a decent imitation with its own things to recommend it.
1: And it would never exist if it weren't for them.
0: No. And it kept the Arnest family working until the day where they could both get better gigs. <laughs> so we respect the fact That Them and Beginning of the End made sure that the Arnest brothers were taken care of until the 60s arrived, and they were set for life. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NB that's NB and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Them from 1954, yes, and Beginning of the End from 1957, yeah, sure. Schools in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.
1: Make me a sergeant, give me the booze, make me a sergeant, give me the booze, make me a sergeant, give me the booze, please, make me a... My nerves...